The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'm glad you're all here for part two of our um, Acts Church History Seminar. To- today we're going to be looking, or tonight we're going to be looking at Christological controversies in Augustine and some other things. We're going to talk about the difference in church life before and after Christianity became the official state religion. Some of those uh, differences we can still see in the Roman Catholic Church today. So there were some big changes that occurred. And uh, we're going to be looking at that. We're also going to be looking at the controversy over, over the person of Christ, the deity of Christ. We're going to talk about the origins of monasticism and where that all came from. We're going to talk about Donatism. And I bet, how many people in here know what Donatism is? Well, that's great. You're in the right place. There you go. One person has heard about Donatism. And I'm going to ask him to come up and help, help me teach it because I had to refresh my memory on it. I'll tell you what. No, I won't do that. I wouldn't do it at all. And we're going to look at one of my absolute favorite heroes of this part of church history, Athanasius. I mean, if it weren't for Athanasius, we might all be Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, no joke. I mean, you, you laugh, but we, it might have gone Arian at that point if it hadn't been for one man. And God used that one man, Athanasius of Alexandria, to stand up and courageously take a stand for biblical Christianity. So we're going to look at that and, uh, and the resolution of that. And we're going to set the stage for medieval Christianity, which is what we're going to look at next time. All right? Let's start with the imperial church. Now, the way we left it last time was that the emperor Constantine had a vision. Now, remember, up to that point, all last time, we talked about persecution, the relationship between the Roman government and the Christian church. And there were cycles of persecution. It ebbed and it flowed. It, it got strong and then it was weak again. We looked at some martyrs. Martyrs were Christians who died for their faith. They were willing to die for their faith and they did die. Uh, but at a certain point, Christianity had reached such a strength in the empire that Constantine saw it as beneficial to declare himself a Christian. Now, I'm not doubting the man's salvation. It makes a big difference to him right now whether it was genuine or not, okay? It really does. But we're looking at it from the outside looking in. I can't look into his heart. All I know is that the night before a battle at the Milvian Bridge, he had a vision of the cross and a symbol of Christianity, the Cairo symbol. Cairo symbol looks like this. And you can see that in most Catholic churches these days. Um, that was the symbol of Jesus Christ. And he had his soldiers put that symbol on their shields. Okay? And they carried those shields into battle and they won against some odds. They were actually outnumbered. And they won that battle. Constantine was one of four competitors to the Roman throne, to the empire. And he defeated his number one rival at Milvian Bridge and gained the upper hand on the others. Eventually, he conquered the whole Roman Empire. He became the Roman Emperor. Originally, he worshipped Saul Invictus, the unconquerable sun god. It was, he was a pagan deity, and he worshipped him. Eventually, he turned to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Interesting, uh, wasn't long after Constantine became or declared himself to be a Christian, that he decided that the best day to celebrate the birth of Christ was the celebration of Saul Invictus, December 25th. So it's hard for me to get a little misty about December 25th. I must be real honest with you. I think it's good to have a day in the church year in which we celebrate the birth of Christ. But whether it was actually December 25th or not, only God knows. I happen to know that that was the day that the pagans celebrated Saul Invictus. Now, it doesn't prove that Jesus was never really born the way that uh, politically incorrect Bill Maher says. He knows about that whole thing. The truth is Jesus truly was born in Bethlehem uh, according to the scriptures. It's just the date that we're wondering about. So don't get too misty about December 24th at 11.59 and then it clicks over, you know, Christmas Day, the day Jesus was born. 
having birthday celebrations for Jesus and all that. If you want to do that, that's fine. But just realize where the December 25th part came from. All right, now we're going to talk about the imperial church. Now let's look at the church before Constantine took over. What was it like? And it was, it was decried by its opponents as a church of slaves. And, and the reason for that, and it wasn't literally true, not every Christian was a slave, were slaves of Christ, of course, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. But what they're saying is that Christians were truly just the lowest rung of society. They were the dregs of society. Was that true? Well, actually, it really was in a lot of respects. Not entirely. There were some educated Christians. Paul puts it in perspective in uh, 1 Corinthians 1. Somebody read these verses for me. Put it on your page here. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. Right. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He purposefully kind of put the church together in Corinth, didn't he? And what did the church look like? A bunch of lowly folks that nobody cared about. And why did he do that according to Corinthians? So that no one may boast before him. You have to realize what a big thing is human pride to God. Boasting. He hates it. And therefore, he does a lot of things to cut off human boasting and pride. And one of those things is just by the constituency of the church. They were not the top flight folks. They were people that God wanted. The lowest of the low in many cases. Pagan critic Celsus, who Origen wrote against, Christians were ignorant folk whose teaching took place not in schools nor open forums, but in kitchens, shops, and tanneries. Well, to some degree, that was true as well. A lot of Christian evangelism occurred in those common places. God did that, and I think it needs to still go on these days, although we wouldn't say kitchens, shops, and tanneries, but we'd say in the workplace these days, wherever you work, or in the supermarket, or in the gas uh, at the gas station, or wherever you can interact with non-Christians. That's how the, the gospel does best. We've gotten into a mentality in thinking that uh, evangelism happens best by the pastor on Sunday morning, and you bring your friends to church, and he'll evangelize them, and then at the end of the service, he'll give what's known as an altar call. Wait till we get to the section in which I tell you where that popped up and what an innovation in church history that was. I know I'm treading on some Baptist toes. That is the Baptist sacrament is the altar call. But realize that for, the, for 19 centuries, the church got along without it. And people are actually in heaven from the first of the 19th century without coming forward. It's shocking, I know. But at any rate, it really did happen. Okay? Charles Finney in the Second Great Awakening uh, that's another story from the night. We're looking forward to that one, but uh, at any rate. All right, actually, despite the fact that Tertullian, Justin, Martyr, Clement, and Origen were scholars, most early Christians were from lower echelons of society. Now, early Christian worship uh, focused on a celebration of Christ's resurrection, a very, very much a focus on that. Uh, communion was only for the baptized, and that's true here at this church as well, uh, only for people who have committed to Christ through baptism. There was extensive teaching from Scripture. Now, understand why. First of all, is just the importance of teaching in a Christian life. We can never underestimate. We need to keep learning. Keep learning. And when you stop learning, you stop growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Man does not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, how long is it going to take you to thoroughly study every word that comes from the mouth of God? The rest of your life. You're not done yet, and you won't be done. You need to keep learning. Keep learning. And they knew that. But also, there's a second reason. How many of you have brought your Bibles here tonight? Does any? All right. Well, praise God that you have them. They didn't. They didn't have Bibles. And so their access to Scripture was worship. That's when they heard the Word of God. That's when the people came and they would read the Scriptures. I told you about those that were traditores, those that handed Scripture over to the authorities. That's huge. Now your church has no Bible. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to teach? There were very few copies. All copies were handwritten, manuscripts. And so they would have extensive teaching because nobody had Scripture. And sometimes it lasted for several hours. I'm talking about the sermon. Way past 12.30. I mean, long, long sermons. Okay? You want to hear something funny? I'm, is this, never mind. I'll, I'll tell you afterwards when I'm not on tape. Um <laughs> about that topic. It's a funny one. I'll tell you something. Knowledge of church history helps you to keep a good sense of humor when people bring things up because it's just like if you only knew how long the Puritans sat and listened to sermons and how they got to 76thly, 77thly, 78thly, 
I mean, you'd realize just how blessed you have it that you have such a short-winded pastor. All right, uh, extensive teaching. Some some worship in catacombs. Now, you've heard of the worship in catacombs. That's where the dead were buried. Initially, it was not for protection from persecution, but rather for a sense of fellowship with dead Christians. Not being weird, okay, but just the sense that we are all part of the same body, and that is biblical. We are all one fellowship, both those who have gone ahead and those who haven't. And why? Because Jesus said that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They're still alive somewhere. And so a lot of them were martyrs, for example. And they, um, and believe me, this was not some weird seance or anything. I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying that to be near their memorials, they would remember their death and their life and that they were still in fellowship together through Jesus Christ. And someday they would see each other again. But then when persecution broke out, it was a convenient place to hide as well. And so they would have worship in the catacombs. And so there are mark, markings down in the, in the bowels of Rome in the catacombs, ancient Christian markings, and very interesting to see there. But most worship throughout the Roman Empire, all the churches, were in private homes. That's where most of it happened. There were some buildings. In I think in Acts 18, it talks about how uh, Paul rented the lecture hall of Tyrannus, where he used to meet with them. So it was a, a, a larger hall where they could meet all together. So we shouldn't think there were nothing but private homes. Sometimes there were church buildings, but mostly it was just in people's homes. Just like the church in China now. Many, many people meet in homes rather than in big buildings. And so it is around the world. Now, as the church grew larger, then you'd have more than one church, so to speak, in a city. Originally, they tried to have just one church in the city. But if it got big enough, they couldn't do that anymore, and so they had to have smaller meetings. Well, they wanted to continue to have a, a sense of unity together, and so they take something called a fragmentum, a piece of the Lord's Supper bread, and, and they'd contribute all to the kind of mother church. And so they would all be kind of eating from the same loaf, I think is what they were trying to do. And I think that was really an interesting part of their worship. Also, they had baptism classes. Very interesting. If you wanted to be baptized, you had to wait probably as much as three years. And they would have catechumen classes. You would be catechized. You would be educated in Christian doctrine before they would baptize you. They would also watch your life. And why would they do that? I mean, if somebody claims to be Christian, aren't they a Christian? By their fruit you will know them. Okay? Is it true that everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian? No. They were very strong on a believer church. And baptism was for believers. Well, how can you tell if somebody's a believer? Well, they may have been a believer right from the start. God knows. He knows when he sent the Holy Spirit into them. But you can't see that. All you can do is begin to observe how it is with one born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. As you watch their life, you begin to see how they live. And so over three years' time, in that time, they're being trained in Christian doctrine you're also watching to see if there's some changes in their life. Do some of those pagan habits, do they drop out? They're not looking for perfection, but they're looking for sanctification, some growth, willingness to be persecuted uh, for their faith. And so then they would be baptized. So I, I think, you know, we now have a membership class and people, again, it's all part of that thing uh, that, you know, as soon as somebody wants to, they should be free to join. Y'all come, you know, whenever. And my feeling is, no, I think a believer church is more important than that. I think churches all over the SBC are suffering because they've not maintained standards for membership. Well, they maintained those standards back then. Of course, the pure persecution helped. I mean, it helped a lot. If you weren't serious about your faith, there's no way you were going to stick it through. All right. Baptism <clears throat> um, was usually administered only once per year on Easter Sunday. That must have been a special day. And on that day, on coming out of the water, the people were given white robes to, to wear. The white robes, Revelation 3, 4. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy, it says there. So that was symbolic of that, of purity. Um, they were given water to drink, which was symbolized of being cleansed inside and outside. So the water goes on the outside of their body, but they're also drinking water on the inside for internal cleansing. Um, they also were anointed with oil, part of the royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2. We're all part of a royal priesthood now. We're anointed believers in Jesus Christ. And they were given milk and honey. Why is that? 
for the promised land. They're, they're going to a better place. They're going to heaven. And so it's just a symbol of their, you know, what a sweet day it was to be baptized. After three years, you're waiting for Easter Sunday, and then what a day. And the commitments you make to walk in holiness, what a great thing that was. Now, you've heard of the fish symbol. How many of you have seen fish decals and bumper stickers and Darwin back and forth? There's been a war of those. They keep going back. Do the Darwinists have an even bigger fish now coming and eating up truth? I don't know. I mean, it just keeps going on and on. We know who's going to win that battle. But anyway, all right. The fish symbol is made up of an acronym, okay? Okay, ikthus, all right? Which means fish. That's a Greek word for fish, ikthus. All right, the first is where we get Jesus, or Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christus. The, the, this stands for theos, which is Greek word for God. Theos, God. Huios, pronounced with an H sound. Huios means son. Soterior, S, means savior. So that's how it works. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. Kind of like a little catechism all built up into the word fish. Okay? So now when you're driving down, you can look and say, hey, I know what that means. Ekthus. What was that again? Whatever. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. And that was part of their symbols, and, and it was used during their times of persecution as well. Now, how did church life change under Constantine? Well, it changed a lot. I mean, huge. First of all, most importantly, there was no persecution. And along with that, look at number three, came a deluge of new believers, quote-unquote. Maybe they dropped that three-year baptism class. <laughs> I don't know, there just wasn't time, I suppose. They're trying to rake them in at that point. I mean, there were just lots and lots of people just pouring into the church. And there was this thing called official theology. We're going to talk about that more in a minute with Eusebius of Caesarea. But the idea of a state-run theology, a theology backed up with the arm of the state. And that ends up being a problem because then the church ends up being the persecutor. That's a big change. Now, it didn't happen right away. But it wasn't long after that one emperor, I think Theodosius was his name, started doing that exact thing. If you didn't fit into his doctrines, you were in trouble. So the same old persecution now happened within the church. And it's something that that just hung over people from that point really until the Reformation and even in, into and through the Reformation. So the church became its own biggest persecutor. Uh, and it really started at that point with the official theology. In addition... There were great new basilicas, big churches, church buildings, beautiful things. Cathedrals later on uh, were, were the successors of these basilicas. A lot of them were built at the grave, grave sites of martyrs. That's where they would build them, or in the Holy Land sites. You can't turn around in the Holy Land without bumping into a basilica. I mean, there's just churches everywhere. A lot of them were built by Helena, who was Constantine's mother. She was very pious. And her big thing were two things. She liked pilgrimages to the Holy Land and building basilicas in the Holy Land and other places too. So with this ornate, these basilicas, you also have ornately decorated churches. You start getting icons. Icons are physical symbols of spiritual realities. I'd call them idols, actually. All right? But, I mean, that's me. I'm Protestant. I'm Puritan too. I mean, you just don't want that stuff in the church. But, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church also have these these symbols, these idols. And it was all part of this artistic expression at that point. And they took on spiritual meaning as well. And, you know, what's the very last verse in First in First John? Chapter 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That's a New Testament injunction. It's not over yet. There's still a tendency to fashion and make something that becomes an object of worship. But that's what they did. And one thing I loved about what, what Martin Luther said, he um, during the Reformation, his young, zealous reformers were going to were racing through churches and ripping down idols, throwing them in the ground, crashing them, smashing them. He said, "Stop doing it." He said, his whole program was preach the word, teach the word, teach the word, preach the word. He said, "Take care of the idols in the heart, and the idols on the wall will take care of themselves." And that's what I feel about this church or any church: preach, 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 teach, 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 and the people will take them down. Because they'll want to. They'll say, what are those doing up there? But if you go in and you take them down, you've got nothing but trouble. All right? 
preach, preach, preach. See, and that's what what Luther did. But this is where they started back here at this point. All right. Also, marriage of pagan holidays with Christmas or Christian meaning. We already talked about Christmas Day. Also, there's more ornate worship, ministerial garments, incense, official gestures of respect for Roman officials. Maybe the emperor was at your worship, and so you'd want to gesture to him, maybe kneel to him or something like that. So these things started becoming included in worship, and they're still with, I think they're still with the Catholic Church today in a lot of respects. I was Catholic for 20 years, so I observed this firsthand. Um, Processionals, you know, they'd walk in, and there'd be kind of lines of priests walking in, and it was just more of an ornate what we would call kind of a high church worship that came in. Um, also, at this point, for the first time, we have choirs. Now, I hate to tell you folks, but the choir was not part of worship early on. They didn't have them. They didn't have them. Now, it's just like you have to kind of always be assessing. Is it true that we, that we must have choirs and committees or only, and only may have preaching? Or that we must have preaching and only may have choirs and committees? That's the kind of thing you work through. But realize choirs popped in at this point. And choirs are, are useful and beneficial, but realize that for the first three centuries they didn't have them. What this led to was a decrease or a reduction in congregational participation. All right. Also, we have official honor, honor for martyrs. Anniversary dates, shrines, relics. And this is the beginning of what came to be known as the church calendar and the church year. They're just looking at this kind of thing. And that's with them today. Pilgrimage to the Holy Land, that was big. And that's the seeds of that ultimately sprouted out in the Crusades. You know, they wanted the Holy Land so they could go on pilgrimage there. They wanted the sites of Jesus' birth and death and all that to be in Christian hands, not Muslim hands. The Islam Islamic forces moved through later. We're not going to get to that tonight. But um, that's the beginning of it. And then also infant baptism. Now, there's big debates about when infant baptism started, but we really don't have any record of infant baptism, solid record before the 4th century. It's really about the 4th or 5th century that you start getting records of infants being baptized. All right, now let's look at Eusebius of Caesarea. Now, you remember the story of the martyrdom Polycarp? If you were in worship on Sunday, you know, you heard it twice. You heard it this past Wednesday, yeah. And Well, where did that story come from? Well, it came from Eusebius. Eusebius was the earliest church historian. He wrote something called Church History, a book called Church History. Now, Eusebius is a very interesting guy. And he points out some of the strengths and weaknesses of the imperial church. Okay? He didn't mean to do it. He loved the imperial church. I mean, the imperial church was almost to him heaven on earth. That was his whole thing. This is, I mean, he, he just thought the emperor Constantine was the third, he literally said he was the thirteenth apostle. I mean, that's what he felt about Constantine. He said, looking westward or eastward, looking over the whole earth, and even looking at heaven, always and everywhere, I see blessed Constantine leading the same empire. Well, this is a guy that's lost perspective, in my opinion. But it's easy to see why. Realize, now let's follow his life. He's born in the year 260, around 260, probably in Palestine. He experienced persecution early in his life. His mentor, his teacher, was executed, was martyred for the faith. So were many of his close friends. Now, how is a guy like that likely to feel about, about Constantine, who ends it all and embraces Christianity? Oh, absolutely. He is a hero to him. Constantine's, uh, through all this, he began writing his church history. He was collecting little anecdotes, stories like Polycarp and all that, just collecting them. And thank God he did. I mean, we wouldn't have those things if it weren't for his work. And he did. He accumulated this and he started writing these stories. Constantine was converted, so to speak. Believe me, I'm not questioning the man. I just can't read his heart. I have no idea. I see all kinds of political reasons for his conversion. But he may have genuinely been a convert. The Edict of Milan which uh, basically ended persecution, became something like the exodus for persecuted Christians. They were free at last from the rod of their oppressor. And that's kind of the way they looked at it. And so the, uh, Constantine was God's chosen instrument, or you could write the 13th apostle. That's what, it, that's what it was for him. He was elected bishop of Caesarea, and he became embroiled in the de debate over Arianism. And unfortunately, he was on the wrong side on that one. Uh, now, in, de in his defense, it was still early, and it could be that they, he didn't fully, fully understand all of the ramifications of Arianism. We'll get to that in a minute. But he was involved in that. He was um, After Constantine's death, he finished his book, Church History, uh, and basically it had, a, it had a purpose. It was an apologetic work. He was making a defense, making a defense, uh, a defense of Christianity as the ultimate goal of all human history. And, and I would agree with that from the book of, of Daniel, really. But he put it within the context of the Roman Empire. 
He kind of married it together. The Roman Empire, that's the whole thing, the context there. And so it, it just was incredible to him when Constantine declared himself to be a Christian. Constantine's conversion and his activity in religious disputes, and that's big, because we're going to see in a minute the Council of, of um, Nicaea that Constantine is presiding over it. He's basically running the council, and the council is a theological discussion, and so he's running the thing. All right, But he, Eusebius, thought this was great. His involvement in theological disputes was important, and, and it was great for him. He thought it was wonderful. It was the keystone to the entire structure. And what was that structure? Christian faith and the Roman Empire were totally compatible to him. And so you want the emperor involved in theological disputes and all that. That's Eusebius. Eusebius took great pride in ornate church buildings. Thought that was great too. All right, But he failed to see the effect it was having on church life. Now you've got the development of clerical aristocracy patterned after the whole Roman structure. All right? You've got ruler priests, for example, and it was no longer really a church of the common people the way it had been before. He didn't see that. He also failed to see the coming kingdom of God. That whole idea was dropped by the wayside. The idea of a coming kingdom. Yeah. I don't know. That would be very interesting. i tell you something. One of the most interesting things you can ever do is to t take a text of Scripture, interesting, juicy text of Scripture, and to trace its interpretation over 20 centuries. Just see how the church interpreted it at different times. Very interesting to do. I did it with eschatology. One of my most favorite things to do is to show how the church has always loved end-time speculation. They've always enjoyed taking the things on the newspaper and the things in the Bible and fitting them together somehow. Eusebius is doing it here. And, and so the whole thing is, you know, well, you've got Russian tanks sweeping across Eastern Europe. Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth. I mean, it's exciting, isn't it? It really is motivating. And if that doesn't work, you go on to the next, you know? I've got a, one of my favorite books. I should have brought it here. Uh, it's a book with Saddam Hussein on the cover. And it was written in 1991, just as Operation Desert Storm was just getting going. All right? And he was being put up as the new Nebuchadnezzar and a new Babylon and all this kind of thing. The price printed on the book was $8.99. I got it for 25 cents. Why do you think I got it for 25 cents? Why the great savings? Time had passed. <laughs> it was pretty clear that Saddam was going nowhere after we got through with him. So I got it for 25 cents, and now I use it as a humor value thing. you know. But we've always loved this kind of speculation. Eusebius did it. He, it wasn't speculation to him. This, was, this really was the kingdom of God on earth. It had come. The kingdom had come. God's will was being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the way he saw it. And so they kind of started to devalue the idea of the second coming of Christ, too. What does he need to come for? We've got Constantine. I'm, I'm going a little too far, but in effect, that's, that's almost the feeling you get with Eusebius. Very triumphal when, when you read church history, his, his, his book, Church History. Just very excited. This is as paradise to him. All right, but not everyone was so optimistic. Some people saw the problems. And you get two basic responses at this point. You get the monasticism, monks, and you get the Donatist controversy. Now, who were the monks? Well, first of all, the roots of monasticism, one could say, are biblical. For men, you might get this passage, Matthew 19, 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, this is in the context of divorce and remarriage, talking about marriage, not remarriage, but divorce and marriage itself. Um, Jesus gives his teaching on divorce, and it seems strict to the disciples. They don't, they don't understand why it's got to be so strict. And basically, they conclude that this is a situation between a husband and wife. It's better not to get married. Interesting what Jesus says at this point. He says, not everyone can accept this. Well, what does that mean, not everyone can accept it? Not everyone can accept not getting married. There's some people who just can't handle not getting married. In what way? Well, there's temptations. There's a yearning. And there is a right way to deal with that, and it's called marriage. And so not everyone can accept it, but only those to whom it has been given. Well, what does that mean? There's a class of people, it seems, who don't need to be married. They're celibate. They just don't need it. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made by that way by men. And the NIV is really gentle here. <laughs> the, the, the Greek actually says, and some have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Origen took that literally. I'll, I'll just leave it that, there. I mean, literally took that literally. He became a eunuch for Christ. 
um, and then was a scholar from then on. But the NIV is gentle and just says, renounce marriage. They have turned away from marriage and renounced it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In other words, if God's given you the gift of celibacy, be celibate. That's what he's saying. All right, so that kind of leads to this category of people that's ready to go for the Lord, just like the Apostle Paul. He seemed to be like that. He didn't need a wife. He was just roaming to and fro, doing the Lord's work. That's men. Women, you get 1 Timothy 5, the idea of widows. Now, here's a, a woman who has lost her husband through death. And there's this whole list of widows thing. And this is just reading between the lines. But if you just look at it, it says, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for a good deed, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Well, that, verse 10, seems to be the category of tasks that these widows were supposed to be doing. And in return, it seems that the church was going to support them financially, which is big for a widow back then. I mean, if you don't have a man to provide for you, it's very hard. And so in this case, the, the church becomes the husband, kind of. The church provides. But look what he says. As for younger widows, don't put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Well, Paul, what's wrong with getting married? Well, nothing. In a minute, he's actually going to tell them, so I counsel younger widows to marry. So if there's something wrong with marriage, then why would he counsel them to marry? Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have what? Broken their first pledge. Very interesting. In effect, it seems that the widows were expected to make a pledge or a promise to not get remarried, and in return, the church would support them and they would do various good works for the church. That seems to be what, what was going on there. Well, that's the biblical context. In church history, the context then became the issue of martyrdom. Now that Constantine has declared himself to be Christian, martyrdom's no longer an option. And so, um, and realize that was really big. I mean, they, a lot of these people wanted to be martyrs. They were afraid that their martyrdom would be ruined. They wanted to be martyrs. So what are they going to do? They need to somehow prove their dedication and their loyalty to Christ some other way. And so they became white martyrs. In effect, what this meant was they they died to everything in this world. They, they, that, they're called that because of their clothing that they wore. But they died to their lives in this world. Now, the word monk literally means, it comes from the Greek monarchos, which means solitary. And here we get a little bit away from the biblical text that I've given you. These folks were supposed to be about doing good. I mean, they were within the church, like the widows. They were doing good deeds for people. And I think probably the eunuchs, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, doing the same thing too. These people didn't do that. They said, see you later to the world. Goodbye. You're no friend of my faith. And out they go to the desert, like John the Baptist. So they go out and they live in solitary places. <clears throat> and the word monarchist means solitary, or they themselves were solitary. Now, the key paradigm guy for this was Anthony. Anthony's a very interesting guy. I have a picture here of his struggles with the devil. You wonder, how in the world could I have a picture of Anthony's struggles with the devil? But I do. There's Anthony with demons all around him and then pulling at his hair. I'll just pass this around and you can look. Hang on, let me just get it real quickly so you can all look at it. See the pulling with the hair, the demons, at feet, legs, poking your eyes out, the whole thing. That's him struggling. See? Isn't that horrendous? So he went out there to fight the devil. I'll pass it around and you all can look at it. But keep listening while you look. <clears throat> yes, that is an artist's conception. Jack, you are very astute. It is not a photograph. <laughs> yes. Okay, he came into a church one day and he heard Christ's words to the rich young ruler being preached. Okay? If you want to be perfect, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And so that's what he did. He sold all his possessions except some, which he kept for his widowed sister. Then he heard another sermon in which basically from Matthew 6, do not be anxious for tomorrow, he sold the rest and basically committed her to the church. Hopefully the church took care of her. But that's what Anthony did. And so he's got nothing left and he went out into the desert. He left for the desert. And in the desert he found an old man in a cave already living the solitary life. So he was not the first guy to do this. And he learned from him how to do it. How you went, and he spent a lot of time fasting and praying. Many times he was tempted to go back on his word. Um, it was very difficult for him. By the way, this whole story, the life of Anthony, was written by Athanasius, who we're going to talk about in a minute. 
We know about Anthony from Athanasius because he wrote the story of his life. Many times he was tempted to go back into society. He regretted having sold his goods. He fasted all the more. Sometimes he went days without food or water. Ultimately, he left the old man and went to live totally alone in an abandoned cemetery. He lived on bread some kind souls brought him in order that he might survive. And he wrestled with demonic visions, which you're looking at right now. Um, he, he just was being tempted all the time by the devil. And he wrestled with them. And some of these wrestlings actually left him bruised and sore for days. Now, I don't know how it all worked. I know that Luther later would throw an inkwell at the devil. When the devil came in, he was being tempted so severely that, you know, and it may be that they just got to this certain level spiritually where they just really felt a demonic presence and they were wrestling with it. God ultimately spoke to him in a vision not to be afraid that he would always be provided for. And this caused him to move even further into the desert. Now, why? Because he was being soft on himself. He was too close to these kind souls that were bringing him bread. Now, this is the whole mentality of monasticism. There's never an enough. I mean, no matter what you're doing, it's never enough. That's what Martin Luther would find later. If anyone could ever have made it to heaven by monkery, that's what Luke said, it would have been me. Well, it might have been Anthony, too. I mean, there are a lot of guys that did this kind of thing. I don't know about any stigmata. He is a saint in the Catholic Church, designated a saint. Yeah, I don't know if that was him. I, I, it may be. Um, soon some younger men came to join him, and that's what made him so important. He began to train other people on how to be a monk. And so he passed on a certain order of monasticism. Uh, ultimately, under uh, Pacomius and some others, it, it got codified and some rules started getting made about how you do it. All right, but that, that was the kind of the start of it. And this was a reaction to Constantine. Do you see what's going on? They're, they're needing to get away from the church. And why? Because the church isn't pure anymore. The church is full of a bunch of non-Christians. The church has changed. It's not, it's not right anymore, and so they just want to get away. Also, perhaps they're trying to earn their salvation. I don't really know. Um, I'm not trying to judge Anthony, but just saying that there was a motive there, you know, a pull toward doing good deeds. All right, the second reaction was Donatism. Now, Donatism is named after this bishop, Donatus. What happened was a certain bishop, um, I forget his name, but anyway, he was uh, elected uh, by the other presbyters or other bishops to be the bishop of Carthage. Now, Carthage is right across the Strait of Sicily. You know the Italian boot and then the Sicilian island? It's in North Africa right across from there. I think it's modern Libya. Carthage is there, and it was a traditional enemy of Rome. Eventually, after the Third Punic War, the Romans conquered Carthage, and it became kind of a Roman settlement. It also became kind of a hotbed of Christianity. Tertullian lived there. Augustine of Hippo lived there. And it became kind of what they called the Bible Belt of the ancient world. It was really a strong, conservative, you know, Bible-believing area. Carthage. Well, the bishop, after all the persecution, all that was, was over and Constantine, bishop was designated and hands were laid on by three bishops. One of those three bishops had been a traitor to the faith. All right. He had given over the scriptures and had done some other things. And so the question came, does his laying hands on, does it nullify this guy's ordination as a bishop, so to speak? All right. Because he was a traitor to the faith and therefore this man can't be the true bishop. So they raised up this guy Donatus and said, he's the true bishop of Carthage. Well, now there's a schism. There's a split. Who's the true bishop? Basically, the Donatus, in effect, started their own church. And this went on for a long time. It became known as the Donatist Schism. They basically started their own church. And the idea, the basic idea with them was the purity of the church. Was the church going to be pure, believers only, true, true confessors of the faith? Or was it not going to be that way? Eventually they died out, although a form of Donatism lasted until it was the Muslims that basically probably killed them all. Um, but it lasted that long. Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, wrote against their teachings and pretty much dealt with their issues and answered them satisfactorily. But they continued on in a certain form until the Muslims came through. So those are the two responses, monasticism and Donatism. Now let's look at the Christological controversy, Arianism and Athanasius. This is a big, big moment in church history. And it has to do with the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus asked his disciples in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16 a key question. And it's on the on your answer to that question, your eternal soul depends. Did you know that? And what is that question? Who do people say that I am? Or specifically, who do you say that I am? 
really just kind of important, isn't it? You know, and Jesus is the one that asked the question. Well, who is Jesus? Well, we have an answer based on Scripture, don't we? But we also have an answer that's come to us through the theological wranglings of this whole Arianism controversy. It is the reason that we are not Jehovah's Witnesses, but instead that we believe in what we call Orthodox Christianity, the Nicene Creed. Now, what do the Jehovah's Witnesses teach about Jesus? He's not the same substance. He's not God himself. He's a created being created being he's perhaps the greatest he not perhaps he is the greatest of all created beings but he is a created being we do not believe this we believe jesus is god himself in the flesh but it's not easy to understand is it very difficult and so they had to work through and what happened was arius was a presbyter an elder i guess what we would call a pastor in alexandria egypt and the issue was was the word of god christ co-eternal with God. Co-eternal means has always existed. If he has always existed, he is not a created being. Arius's slogan was, there was when he was not. That's the slogan of Arianism. Things existed or something existed or God existed at a time when Jesus did not exist. Therefore, Jesus is what kind of a being? He's a created being. That's the essence of Arianism. All right. Now, this is huge because I believe if you think that, you're not a Christian. I think if you think that, you miss the whole point of John's gospel. Not just John 1, 1, but the whole gospel, which is written to prove that Jesus is God himself in the flesh, the creator of the ends of the earth. Well, Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, opposed Arius. He said Christ was co-eternal with God. The theological controversy turned political. There started to be riots in the streets. Now, you may think, why in the world would they care that much about a theological issue? Well, let me, let me try to explain something. Not everyone throughout all time have been postmodernists like us who don't care about truth. There are some people who really do care about right and wrong, truth and falsehood. We couldn't imagine rioting in the streets over a theological issue. Well, let them believe what they want to believe. I have my truth, they can have theirs. Well, they didn't think that back then. There were factions. There were, it was like two armed camps almost. And they were not only having their, have you ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness? And they're very tough to talk to. They have their verses, don't they? And they're tough verses to answer. You've got to deal with them. There are verses that seem like Jesus is not God. And you just have to deal with those verses. It's not easy. Well, the eastern part of the empire was threatened by this. It was like it was going to be ripped apart. And so Constantine defeats his enemy, Licentius, I think his name was, or something, Licinius, and he takes over that part of the world. And he says, we can't have this. I mean, this is not good for the empire. It's not good for... So he calls the Council of Nicaea. Now, Nicaea happened to be close to his home base, Constantinople. It was in Asia Minor. And three, uh, the tradition has it, 318 bishops from all over the area um, came to um, Nicaea. Eusebius was there. Now, remember Eusebius. He was a historian. And he was there, and he describes what it was like. There were gathered the most distinguished ministers of God from the many churches in Europe, Libya, that is Africa, and Asia, a single house of prayer as if enlarged by God, sheltered Syrians and Cilicians, Phoenicians and Arabs, delegates from Palestine and from Egypt, Thebans and Libyans, together with those from Mesopotamia. There was also a Persian bishop, and a Scythian was not lacking. Pontus, Galatia, Pamphylia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Phrygia, sent their most outstanding bishops jointly with those from the remotest areas, areas of Thrace, Macedonia, Achaia, and Epirus. The bishop of the imperial city, what's the imperial city? Rome. The bishop of the imperial city is Rome. He later became called the what? The Pope. That's right. Could, um, could not attend due to his advanced age, but he was represented by his presbyters. Constantine is the first ruler of all time to have gathered such a garland in the bond of peace and to have presented it to his Savior as an offering of gratitude for the victories he had won over all his enemies. Eusebius has no doubt as to whether Constantine's a Christian. Um, but anyway, they all gathered. It was a sweet time of fellowship until they started discussing Arianism. And that's when the, the, the lid got blown off. Now, ultimately, they decided correctly, and they came up with the Nicene Creed. God sovereignly, I think providentially, ruled over their decision. And we have the Nicene Creed, even to this day. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, that is, from the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousios in the Greek, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us humans and for our salvation descended and became incarnate, becoming human, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended to the heavens and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit. They don't say much at that point. But those who say there was when he was not. Who says that, by the way? Who says there was when he was not? Arius. All right. Those who say there was when he was not and that before being begotten he was not or that he came from that which is not or that the Son of God is of different substance, hypostasis, or essence, usia, or that he is created or mutable, these, the Catholic, that means universal or united church, anathematizes. They are wrong. Okay, that's the decision they made. Now, very interesting. They say that Jesus is of the same substance, homo usios, same substance in the Greek. Later, there came another controversy that just add a single letter in the middle. One letter, which changed this from same substance to similar substance. Does that make a difference? Oh, you wouldn't believe what a big difference it makes. One letter. And people argued for years over that letter. And you think, oh, you know, that's what theologians do. They get together and they argue over single letters. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Folks, this is orthodox Christianity. You start putting letters in the middle of words like this, you end up with heresy. And that's what they argued over. Well, let me tell you what happened. Nicene Council did it right, but the bishops went home and did their own thing anyway. All right? And long story short, Arianism won. They took over the emperor. The emperor became Arian, not Constantine, but Constantius, uh, his grandson, became Arian. The missionaries going out to the pagan um, kings, the Franks, the German tribes and all that, they were all Arians. Arianism took over the world, pretty much. And, it, you know, one, one historian wrote, the Christian world woke up and found itself Arian. And that's in effect what happened, except one man, Athanasius. Now, Athanasius wrote a book before any of this started called On the Incarnation of the Word. All right, he wrote about this whole thing. I'm on page six. Getting ahead of myself here. But Athanasius, no, I'm not. Even there. We're not going to get to Augustine today. We'll do it next time, which is fine, because Augustine's either the end of something or the beginning of something. We'll deal with them next time. But at any rate, Athanasius was Alexander's right-hand man. He was called the Black Dwarf because he was dark of skin color and very short. Every description of him comes through his enemies. <laughs> so, you know, not necessarily the best description. But Alexander died in 320, but folks, the battle was just beginning. I mean, the Council of Nicaea had not decided it. All right. Basically, like I said, the world woke up and found itself Arian. So Athanasius wrote on the incarnation of the word. The Arian leaders marked him as their chief adversary and began to persecute him. All right. Here your notes run out because I ran out of time today. I had a funeral to do. I'm sorry. All right. But now what I will do is I'll tell you what happened. Athanasius begins fighting the battle. He gets excommunicated. Basically, he's out. He's he's considered a heretic. He's a schismatic. Furthermore, realize that there's a marriage now between state and theology. If Constantius the emperor is Arian, you're in big trouble if you're not. And so he had to flee for his life several times. At one point, one of his friends said, Athanasius, face facts, the world is against you. And he said, the Athanasius is against the world. That was his courage. I mean, it's just amazing. He was willing to die over this. He said, because this is true Christianity. And if, you, if this goes over, then people are going to lose their souls. And so he began teaching and teaching and courageously, and God just turned the tide, really on this one guy. It's almost, almost more remarkable than what happened through Luther, because there really wasn't anybody else with him at this point. He just never gave up, fighting over doctrine. He was convinced from Scripture that he was right, and he was right. The world was blinded. Why? Through politics, through the involvement of the Roman hierarchy in the whole thing, the emperor getting involved. People saw that there was a benefit to seeing doctrine wrong. That's when you have problems. When you mingle church and state this way, it starts to affect theology. And so people were afraid to stand up for what they believed was right. They were cowed into silence. Everybody but Athanasius. 
And you know the amazing thing about the providence of God? There's always an Athanasius when you need him. Always. He just always raises somebody up to be sure the church doesn't lurch off into heresy. It's just the way God is. Thank God for Athanasius. And realize God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of Athanasius. And if you're a Christian, you'll meet him someday. And so thank God for him. Now, that brings us to Augustine. And we don't have enough time. The, the final victory for all of this occurred in 381. Council of Ephesus, I think it was in Ephesus, and they declared Arianism is out forever. And it was out. And that was over. He won the battle, but it cost him huge. I mean, imagine the physical struggle, uh, broken health, all of the things it cost him, but he was willing to die over it. Now, we come to the greatest teacher of the church, and we are not going to have time to go through this. I'm not even going to try. I mean, next time, we'll start with Augustine. Augustine is a good beginning point as well as an end point. He really is a fork in the road. When you come to Augustine, you come to the end of the ancient church and the beginning of the medieval church. And right on from Augustine on into the Reformation, Augustine towers over that whole period of time. So why don't we start our, our look at medieval Christianity with Augustine next time. Do you have any questions for what we've covered so far today? Oh, yeah. I mean, it shows us in, in communion or community with centuries of Christians who believe the same thing. And I think, you know, at the right time, we will read the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I think it's a good thing to do. One of the, the other creed, I think it's... Um, Nicene and Apostles' Creed. One of them has Jesus descending to hell. That has a problem. I have a problem for that. Yeah, well, that's another issue. But um, my feeling is you only put in creeds things that are above reproach biblically. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You don't put something in the creed unless you absolutely know it. All right? Because this is something everyone must believe. And many good people have not believed that Jesus descended to hell, but rather that Jesus suffered while on the cross. Um, and that's, you can go either way on that. But the point is, what kind of things do you put in the creed? But actually, that's a very good question. And we really should, I think, read, read the creed. Um, periodically another question oh yeah but at that point he had he had renounced marriage he could have remarried he said i have the right to take a wife i just am choosing not to so god had freed him if he had been earlier married god had freed him from any need let's say for a wife he said i'm free from that i wish all men were like i was it's it's a hard case to make that paul was a widower it's possible but the way you do it is in context from first corinthians 7 when he's talking to people you know about that. yeah no you're fine um, well, the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed refuted Arianism. For example, one phrase, begotten, not made. That, Jehovah's Witness would never say that. But we can say it, we believe. All right, why don't we uh, finish and we'll, God willing, we'll be here next week. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.